This morning we are going to tackle the whole chapter in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13. So if you would follow along as I read. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore and multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were with, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp. The Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Sheol. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zimboam or Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare 
his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and for a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the golds. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here, and this is a great chapter, and again, by God's providence, it's a great chapter to begin our year with. I want to start off with, uh, with a question, a couple of questions, actually, to help you start to think about the theme and where we're going with this sermon. Um, have you ever dealt with, or have you ever, um, have you ever felt when you lead somebody or someone that you are in charge of, so if you are a parent, a grandparent, um, if you are a supervisor, um, if you're a pastor in here, um, have you ever felt someone that you lead not trust you or obey you? And I, I know we've all dealt with that, especially if you have kids, uh, they continually do not obey you, right? That's just part of it. We did that to our parents and they do that to us. Uh, that is the struggle with the commandment for kids to honor their father and mother, and they always have to be reminded of that. But have you ever dealt with someone that you lead that does not trust you or obey you, and you haven't given them any reason not to? Uh, that's the first question. Answer that in your head. Second question. It's frustrating because we cannot change the situation. We cannot change the person. But what is it that we can change whenever that happens? That's the second question. You see, when we do not trust and obey the Lord, it does not go well for us. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 13. When we come to the realization that we need to repent and seek his will, things change. That's the way God operates. God says, you shall obey my commandments, and if you don't, I will discipline you for that. And as parents, we should understand that. That's pretty fair, isn't it? It's same thing in our, house, in our homes. You shall obey the rules of our homes, the commandments of our homes, and if you don't, you're going to be disciplined for that. And God is, he is different than us, but in that sense, uh, he is no different. There is this, this command, this expectation for us to obey his word, and if we don't, there's discipline. Now, it doesn't matter what we think about his word, because a lot of us will look at his word and we're like, well, I don't agree with what God is saying here. Frankly, God, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. God is God. God is holy. God is right. Uh, no, matter, no matter what, when you compare him against us. So our job and what we are called to do as his people is to seek his will in all things. That's what we are called to do. Um, and also, we are to help those that we lead to seek his will as well. And the reason why I asked you the first question, or the first two questions to start off the sermon, is it is frustrating when you are leading somebody uh, who does not trust you, who does not obey what you say. It's very frustrating. Again, because you cannot change the situation. But imagine how God feels with us. That was the whole point of asking those questions. It's frustrating on our end 
God does not get frustrated with like us, but he does get angry. God does discipline us for our disobedience. And we see that here in our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Um, if this sermon has a theme, this is it right here. A wise man lives according to the commandments of God. That's, that's pretty well established by the Bible. A wise man lives according to the commandments of God, but a fool despises the word of the Lord. You see, when we act foolishly towards God, when we disobey him, we are basically saying we do not trust him. And that's why this, the title of the sermon is to trust and obey. That's what God requires of us. He requires that we trust and obey him. Um, and he requires this above all else. And that's what we're going to focus on as we, as we uh, break down chapter 13. The first thing I want to talk about is the growing conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. If you look at your Bible, uh, the first several verses gives us a backdrop of what's happening here in this story. We know that Saul was anointed king in chapter 10. Uh, so we fast forward to chapter 13. And he did not officially take the throne until a year later, until after he was anointed. So we see the private anointing uh, of the king by Samuel, uh, ultimately by God in chapter 10, but it takes basically a year before the throne is set up. And that makes sense because this is the inaugural th throne of the, of the nation of Israel. So it's going to take some time to establish this new throne, and a year later it's done. Well, early in Saul's reign, um, about another year, as scripture indicates, uh, Israel gets into a confrontation with their arch enemies, the, the, the Philistines. They, there's this history that's, that, that is in between the Israelites and the, and the Philistines, and uh, it's, it's been going on for years and years and years. In fact, if you fast forward uh, through the book of 1 Samuel, you'll see that it is the Philistines who actually end up killing Saul in battle later, killing Saul and his son Jonathan, and that is an act of judgment from the Lord. But here is this battle that is just brewing between the two enemies. And because of the tension between the two nations, uh, Saul is, is required or, or chooses 3,000 men to serve in his army. And that's what we see going on in the first couple of uh, verses in this chapter. Now, if, if we pause there just for a moment and look at this situation, uh, this is important for us to, to, to see, is that this is a, a, a prophecy that is being fulfilled. Uh, remember in chapter 8, uh, the Lord warned the Israelites whenever they wanted to reject him and they wanted their own king. The Lord warned them that, that they would have a king who would take their uh, men away and assign them to his army. And if you want to go back and look at that, that's verses 11 through 12. Uh, he, he, that was a direct warning to the nation. You're going to select a king. He's going to take your men out of your houses and he's going to put him in his army to serve him. All right, so we're seeing that happen here in chapter 13 already, so early in uh, Saul's, uh, in his reign. So the army of the king, what we see here in scripture is that it is separated into two different divisions. Uh, 2,000 of the men stay with Saul, and then 1,000 of the men go with Jonathan. And Jonathan is the son of Saul, and they are both commanders of these two divisions of soldiers. So... After that happens, there are two things that are very important to our story today. After the, the 3,000 men are selected, everybody else is sent home. They separate the army. Uh, 
the Israelites and the Philistines, things between them begin to heat up. First of all, Scripture tells us that Jonathan defeats a garrison of the Philistines at Geba. Okay, that's what it tells us in verse 3. And here's the key thing about it. The Philistines heard about it. Right? Obviously, one of the garrisons are defeated, and they hear about it. So they're agitated with that already. Second thing that happens, Saul, he, he blasts throughout, the, throughout his country, he blasts the announcement that, that, that basically he has gained victory over the Philistines at Geba. And that's what it means by sounding the trumpets. He's bragging about it, and all the Hebrews have heard about it. But guess who else has heard? The Philistines. They heard it. They're agitated. They're angry. They're, they're angry because, number one, one of the garrisons have been defeated. Men were killed. And then number two, that Saul is bragging about it. Okay, so Saul has 3,000 men. The Philistines, maybe they know that, maybe they don't. They know that their, their army is greater than Saul's, though. And so scripture tells us that, the, that, that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. They were basically repulsed by the Israelites, and their actions showed how much hatred they had towards the Israelites. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, it tells us that the Philistines mustered uh, to fight with Israel. So they decided, look, there is stench to us. What do you do with the stench? You, you remove it. You get it out. And so they mustered 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now you see the difference between Saul's army and the army of the Philistines? Saul might have felt pretty emboldened. He might have felt pretty confident when he, choo- when he chose these 3,000 men. But now he's going against an army, a vast army. You can't even count, really, if you're on a battlefield. And so that tells you how much the Philistines hated the Israelites they weren't coming just to win a battle. They were coming to destroy the nation. They were coming to just take everything away, move them, remove them from the face of the earth, and completely deal with the stench that the, that the Israelites were to them. Now, the areas between where the Israelites were and the Philistines were were only a few miles apart. That's the interesting thing about it. And when the Philistines came in to the area. Now think about this. You have this vast army. They had 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and they had troops that were basically unnumbered. They come into the area where the Israelites are, and they're only a few miles apart. You'll be able to hear that, and you'll be able to see that. And so the Israelites, they see this enormous army that is coming towards them, and they are terrified. They are completely terrified. Look at their actions in verses 6 and 7. It says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves. They hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Basically, anything that had a hole in it and that they could fit in there, they were hiding themselves in that. Verse 7, And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed them or followed him trembling. Now listen, the people were so scared that 
Gilgal was an important city to the Israelites because that was the first place they stopped whenever they crossed to Jordan. That's when they offered sacrifices to God. God was great. They were finally in the promised land. So you have that border of the Jordan River that, was, that separated the promised land from the, the land of the wandering. And these Israelites were so afraid of the army of the Philistines that they retreated all the way back to Gilgal, which was right by the Jordan, but even beyond that. So they were basically leaving the land that the Lord had given to them. They were deserting this land, even though God had promised them that this would be their land. He would give it to them. He would make sure that he would defeat any army that threatened them out of the land. And he would be their God and he would lead them. And so they were so afraid with, by this army that, that a lot of them were even not only retreating back to Gilgal, but they were going beyond that and going back into the desert to wander again. Now, when we look at this, we can't help but think about how the Israelites and their behavior mimic the behavior of their king. Right? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago how we spoke about Saul when, when Saul was uh, chosen to be king? Uh, go back to chapter 10, verses 20 and 22. This is after Saul has been anointed privately, and this is his public announcement of his, of his, of the reign, of his reign. And if you look at uh, chapter 10, verses 20 to 22, it shows us what Saul does whenever he is publicly announced. It says, Samuel, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken, which is Saul's tribe. It was taken by Lot. And then out of that... Um, they brought the, 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 the tribe of Benjamin near, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Well, where is he? So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, no, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood, everybody was impressed because basically he looked the part of the king. But look at what Saul did whenever he wanted the moment to pass him by. He hid himself in baggage. He was supposed to be this king, and this is the king that the people have chosen. And it, the moment was too big for him. He was afraid. He had anxiety. Whatever it was, he ran and hid. Now, the people, they saw that. And now what are they doing whenever they're faced with something that they want to pass them by? They run and they hide into anything they can find. Now, I think that's an important lesson for us, for all of us. In essence, we are all leaders and we are all followers. And what I mean by that is obviously we all follow God. But even in our, our earthly relationships, our human relationships, we lead and sometimes we follow. But I think it's important for us concerning the people that we lead, are the people who lead other people, to look at Saul's example here and to understand what our actions do to the people that follow us. 
right? So if you're a father or a mother, if you're a pastor, if you're a supervisor, if you're a manager, if you're anyone in, uh, in the position of authority, we need to think about how our actions affect those that follow us. You see, because we often get frustrated with the attitude and actions of the people that we lead. We just, we can't see how they are that way. We, we don't understand it. Why can't they get it? How many times do I have to tell them? Right, does that sound pretty familiar? I can't take this anymore. Why won't they just learn? Why won't they just do what they need to do? See, we often get frustrated with their attitudes, but I think we're not so frustrated with their behavior I think the most, the, the most important thing that we are f- so frustrated about is that their behavior reflects our own. I think that's what we get frustrated about. Right? So if we, deal, if we deal with cowardice, being cowards at times, trying to escape the moment, and, and then our kids learn that from us, and then whenever something is too big for them, they're running and hiding, and we can't believe that what they're doing what they're doing. If we deal with doubt, if we deal with anger, if we deal with lustfulness, if we deal with covetousness, selfishness, drunkenness, it doesn't matter what the sin is. If we deal with that, the people we lead see that. And they're going to deal with it, too. For some reason, you are their you you are their leader. And I'm not saying that everything you do, they're going to do, but somehow, some way in human relationships, it transfers over. People see a behavior and they begin to accept it for themselves. And they say, well, if my leader's doing that, it's okay for me to do that. So in a sense, we have a responsibility as leaders to be godly. No doubt there is a responsibility for those who follow to be godly and to follow God first and then us. But we need to look at ourselves as leaders, right? Before we get the plank out of their eye or get the speck out of their eye, we get the plank out of ours. And that's what we have to do. We have to look at ourselves and know that what we do, what we say, how we lead matters. It matters. In this instance, the people became cowardly like their king. They ran and hid, just like Saul did whenever he was chosen. So when we look at this, Scripture says that Saul had, or excuse me, that the Philistines had become a stench. The Israelites had become a stench to the Philistines. Well, it looks like Saul had become a stench not only to the Philistines, but also to the Israelites as well. He became a stench to those that he leaded. He needed to change, but as we'll discover, that change would not come. There's a funny situation within Alicia and I, our marriage. It wasn't so funny back then, but looking back at it, it's funny now. And I did ask for her permission to share this story. Uh, I think it fits well with what we're talking about here, but very early on in our marriage, so year 2000, we're, we're only married maybe a month or, or even less. Um, I'm working, she's going to school, and uh, she's also working part-time. So we're both learning our roles here as you know, husband and wives. And uh, 
I come home from work and she has made dinner. And I walk into the house, you know, I, I welcome her with a kiss, I say hi. And the first thing out of my mouth after that is, what does that smell? Yeah, all the ladies already know, right? Yeah, I was like, what does that smell? And she takes a step back, looks at me, and she says, and she says in a godly way, she says, it's dinner. I'm making dinner, right? Something like that. And so right away, I knew I've only been married maybe a month or a little bit less than two months, and I knew I was in trouble. I already knew that I was in trouble, right? And so she's upset, and I know I'm in trouble, and we kind of separate, go on our own ways, and then she goes into the kitchen, and she makes a change to what she was making. Basically, I didn't mean that it smelled bad because it didn't smell bad. Uh, she was making chicken breasts that had butter and garlic in it. And I smelled the garlic real bad, but I didn't know what it was when I walked in. And so that's what I was smelling, and I said, what is that smell? And I didn't mean that, like I said, that it, that it stunk. It was just a wrongly phrased question. And so what she did was she thought that dinner was ruined, and so she needed to change it, and she added Thousand Island dressing. Is that right? Thousand Island? Or Italian dressing. Yeah, that's right, Italian dressing. She added Italian dressing to the recipe. And when it was done, I sat down and I ate, and it was really, really good. And from that day forward, we called that chicken special recipe chicken. And I ate that for years and years and years. I, and the reason why I mention that is because, like I said, Saul was a stench not only to the Philistines, but also to the Israelites. Something needed to change. But that change, it, it would not come. If, if you are leading your families and you are not leading them well, if you are leading a church, if you are leading people anywhere and you're not leading them well, something has to change. And I'm not speaking about, when I say leading them well, I'm talking about from a biblical sense. Are you leading them in the ways of the Lord? If not, you could be a stench to them. Something has to change. So let's look at Saul's foolish behavior. Uh, Samuel had removed himself at this point from the presence of the people. Remember, uh, last week was his farewell address. He was letting everybody know, hey, I'm done here as far as leading you. Uh, I will serve you as prophet and priest, but, but as far as like being an administrator, a governor over uh, this nation, my job is done. Now you have a king. And so he separates himself from the people only to be able to come back and do his priestly duties. So Samuel removes himself. And uh, scholars here believe that Samuel's reference to Saul about waiting for him at Gilgal seven days was a prophecy of the events that were unfolding here now. Uh, look at chapter 10, verse 8. This is important for us to mention because this is going to come up here in a little bit. Uh, chapter 10, verse 8, whenever, Samuel was, or whenever Saul was anointed as king, he was given instructions by Samuel. Samuel tells him, go down before me to Gilgal. That's where Saul is now. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. He tells, uh, Sam, he tells Saul, wait seven days, 
until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so scholars believe that that right there was a prophecy uh, of what's unfolding right now for Saul. And Saul was given specific instructions to go to Gilgal and to wait for Samuel for seven days. Now, there was a lot of time in between this, but Saul understood that this was Samuel's instructions. And so that's why Saul waited seven days for Samuel to arrive at Gilgal. And when Samuel did not arrive, Saul decided to take things into his own hands. Now, when we look at Samuel, we see that Samuel was providentially delayed. And this providential delay was testing, was to test Saul and to test to see if he would trust and obey the Lord. Now, this is similar to when Jesus uh, was summoned to go and help someone who was dying, Lazarus. You, you know, your friend Lazarus is, is dying. He's sick and he's dying. Come now. And then in scripture, we see that he was providentially delayed, that he delayed for three days before he went. And when he went there, he, Lazarus had died. And that's when we have the big scene. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This, God is working through providence here to keep Samuel away, um, to make him late. And as he comes and he is late, uh, this is a test for Saul. And as Saul sits there and waits, he, he just grows more anxious and more anxious about the situation. Now, as I said before, this was a test that Saul did not study for. See, instead of waiting and trusting in the Lord, Scripture says that he forced himself and he offered the burnt offering uh, to gain the favor of the Lord in battle. That was the whole reasoning for the burnt offering. Now, we see that providence has something to deal with this because as soon as Samuel arrived, uh, he discovered that Saul had offered the sacrifices. It was like just perfect timing. Saul's anxious about it. Samuel's not coming. He has this army before him. Everybody's wandering. Everybody's spreading out. Everybody's retreating, leaving him, deserting him. And he does the burnt offering. And as soon as he's done with the burnt offering, boom, Samuel shows up. And here's what Samuel asked him. What have you done? Now, we've heard that question before. We've heard that question before in Scripture. See, because the same piercing question has been posed by God to those who have disobeyed him. Listen to this. This is when uh, Cain killed Abel. Uh, This says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Right? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That was Genesis chapter 4. When Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, what have you done? When Abraham lied about his wife, what have you done? You can go on and on and on. That is the question that is given to all of us as we sin against the Lord we are required to confess what we have done. And so Samuel sins against the Lord, or excuse me, Saul sins against the Lord. Samuel comes, and that is the first thing that is said to him. What have you done? Did you know the same question 
was posed to Jesus? Pilate, in John chapter 18, verses 33 to 35, it says that Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did you, or did others say it to you? Sorry, I got lost here. Let me start over. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? I think it's really interesting that here you have the first king, the first human king of Israel. He's being tested by God. He's, a, he's, he's up against this really tough situation. He, there's this army, this vast army that's coming for him and his nation. His nation is deserting him. He's sitting there and he has been commanded by God to wait. And instead of waiting and trusting and obeying, he says, bring that burnt offering to me. We're going to gain the favor of the Lord. I can't depend on Samuel. He's late. I'm, I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to sit here and obey and trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust in myself. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of the nation, and they will glorify me when it's done. Right? That, that's, that's the reaction of the first human king of Israel. And in that action, he sins against God. And Samuel comes, and he says, what have you done? Then we have Jesus. On the other side, he is the eternal king of glory, the Lord in the flesh. And his situation is, 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 is not any less than what uh, Saul's situation is. He has evil coming against him. Those who are with him, they have deserted him. He is being tested and tried by God. And he has a chance here to get out of it all. And he stays faithful. He obeys God as he was, as he should, and as he was told to. And Pilate asked him, what have you done? You see the difference? Saul, I've sinned. Jesus, I'm blameless. Saul, the king who fails, the king after Israel's own heart, Jesus king after God's own heart. The king who never fails us. You put them side by side and there's no comparison. And I do believe that's what scripture is doing here. Just with that simple question, what have you done? But then we have to turn around and we have to ask ourselves, what have you done? Right? Because we're not Jesus. We're Saul. We have faults. We have sinned against the Lord. What have you done? We'll get there, and I'll explain that a little bit more here in a little bit. See, Samuel knew the answer to that question. Samuel knew what he had done, but he wanted Saul to confess. 
And the big problem here is that Saul didn't even see an issue with what he did. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, if we look at Saul's story, we'd be like, I'd do the same thing. I wouldn't know what to do. Just sit there and wait. A lot of us like that passage where it says, be still, right? Be still and know that I am God. We like that passage, but have you ever tried to be still? And know that he is God in a situation where everything is falling apart? That is extremely difficult. You, you want to do something to fix it. And the more you do, the worse it gets. And that's what Saul was told, be still. The issue wasn't that he wasn't qualified to perform the offering. The issue was that he simply did not obey the word of the Lord to wait there because he did not trust the Lord. Samuel tells Saul that he has done foolishly. That's a key word for us today. What we learn from this is that foolishness is not a matter of the mind, but rather a matter of the heart. Someone calls you a fool, you get upset. Why? Because they just called you unintelligent, right? You, you get upset. You're like, wait a second. Hold on here. I hold this degree. I hold this degree. I've done this. I have all this experience. I'm not a fool. That's the way we use the word in, in, in our day now. But if we are staying true to scripture, when the Bible uses the word fool, it's not a matter of the mind. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of faith. A fool is someone who does not believe in God. That's what Psalms 14.1 says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But then on the opposite side, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So see, what Saul here, or what Samuel is telling Saul is that you have done foolishly. In other words, you have reacted in an ungodly way. You have reacted in a carnal way. You have followed your flesh instead of following the faith that God has given you. So foolishness is not a failure of intelligence, but a failure of faith. Look at verses 13 through 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Why? Because you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which you were commanded. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel has, or Saul has done foolishly because he has not kept the commandment of God. So since to be a fool is a moral issue, then the title itself is usually attributed to unbelievers. Why? Because they do not know God. But believers, although we are not fools because we believe in God, believers can act foolishly. We act foolishly when we disobey the Lord. And I see a lot of heads nodding, and I'm grateful for that because we all acknowledge that. We may not be fools in the biblical sense because we, we believe in God. We trust in him. We are Christians. We have his spirit in us. He is the one who, does, who, who basically uh, makes us not the fool, but we do foolish 
things, and we do this daily. And because of his, uh, when you look at Saul, because of his continued, uh, continued distrust and disobedience, the Lord rejects Saul for another man that he would make king. And he says it will be a man after his own heart. Well, obviously here in Scripture, this man that, that the Lord is speaking about is, is David, but ultimately it is Christ. When he says, this man will be a man after my own heart, what basically the Lord is saying is that he will be a man who wants to do the Lord's will. Right? And in Scripture, we see this attributed to Christ uh, perfectly. We understand that David is after the Lord's heart. He wants to he wants to do his will, but he sins. He sins and he has trouble in his life because of that sin. But on the other hand, we see Christ do this perfectly. In fact, in his the, the, the la, one of the last moments in his life, Christ is the one who prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was Luke chapter 22. So even in this situation, again, this is a, 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 this is a situation where things could have changed for Jesus. He's not worried about his own will, but he's worried about the will of the Father. So then we look back at our passage and we see the consequences of Saul's foolish leadership. And we'll close out the chapter with this, and then I have some questions for you to end. See, as a result of Saul's continued foolishness and his foolish behavior, the people who chose him to lead them, they continue to suffer. This is pointed out in two major ways in Scripture. Number one, verses 15 through 16. After Samuel comes, Saul says, I've done the burnt offering. Notice that Samuel doesn't say, well, it's okay. The Lord's going to save you regardless. Samuel leaves. He's upset. He leaves. And he's expecting Saul to follow. Saul, he decides to follow. Now, remember, Saul started with 3,000 men. But when he got up to follow after Samuel, after Samuel, uh, the Bible says that he had only 600 men. He lost 1,400 men. They retreated. They left. Now, this army that was before them was, it could not be numbered. He had 3,000 men. Now he only has 600. And yet, he's like, well, we're going to go to battle. Think how those soldiers felt. Think about what they were thinking. Why are we following this guy? This guy, he's a fool. Second, second whenever they go to fight, the Philistines thought ahead of time, and they basically took all the blacksmiths out of the area. And so there was no weapons that they could have formed for them. So here they are. They have no weapon. They only have 600 men with no weapons. So they start to get gardening tools and sharpening them. So you have an army of 600 people with basically gardening tools to go fight this major war against the Philistines who numbered the sand on the seashore. That's what his leadership did to that nation. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm following somebody like that, I would definitely have a problem with that. And we can't be too hard on Saul because we do foolish things like that too, and it affects our families. It affects those that we lead. Foolish behavior always carries along with it consequences. There's a lot of friendly fire associated with foolishness. You see, because of our disobedience and distrust of the Lord, the people we love the most, they're the ones who get hurt. So let me ask you this. What have you done? We're all guilty before the Lord. What is it that you've done? How have you acted foolishly? And when I say foolishly, I mean, how have you sinned against the Lord? In what ways do you continue to sin against the Lord? How long have you lived in your foolishness? And how accustomed have you become with it? How often are we often think that our foolishness is not displayed in front of others, but people see it, especially those that we lead? Second, how has your foolishness, your disobedience and lack of trust in the Lord affected those who are closest to you? Are you seeing some of your behaviors in theirs? Are you seeing some of the same foolishness that exists in you in them? Are you being that example, that bad example for them, and they are following your lead? Is your frustration with them brought on because their misbehavior is a reminder of your own? Are you leading your people to green pastures or are you leading them to a dry desert? We must remember that we all do foolish things sometimes. But listen, don't let that be an excuse for you to be a fool. We are no fools. We are believers in Christ. We have been saved by his blood. We have been renewed by his spirit. We are no fools, but we do foolish things sometimes. Remember, a fool says that there is no God. A fool does what is good in his own eyes. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Instead of doing foolish things, we need to seek the things of God. Because when we act foolish, we disobey the commandments of God. And when that does happen, number one, we need to be grateful. I know that sounds strange, but that's what we need to do. We need to be grateful. Because even though we've act, we've act foolishly, the grace of God covers us. We need to be grateful that we can seek repentance. And this repentance that we're able to seek is not because of any earthly ruler in human history. It is because of our eternal king of glory, Jesus Christ. So we need to be grateful that we can seek repentance because of the work that he has done for us. But also, we need to have hope. After we seek repentance and we deal with sin, we need to have hope that one day, not on this side of heaven, but on the other side of heaven, we will not do foolish things anymore. But until then, 
Let us strive to trust and obey God at his word. Romans 12, 12 says this, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Let us pray.